Good morning, Redemption Tempe. My name is Jim Mullins, one of the pastors here. It is a gift to be with you this morning and to worship Jesus together. I want to start this morning by asking a question. Can you convert to a religion and not even know it? About 15 years ago, I had this really amazing opportunity for a few years to work as a basketball scout, a basketball scout in Turkey. And one of my parts of my job was to visit some of the American players who were there and to help them acclimate to Turkish culture. There was this one guy, his name's Leon. I suspected he might not be doing too well because he had lived his whole life and stayed in this one town in Kentucky, and now he has a contract in the most religious, like out in the middle of nowhere town in Turkey, very like, there's a place where there's a lot of fundamentalist Islam, it was a very religious place. And I showed up, and you could tell that he was so happy to see me, (laughs) because he didn't know what he was doing. He had a beard out to here. I asked him, what's going on? He said, I don't know how to buy razors. I keep going to the store. They're locked in the little thing, and I don't know how to ask somebody to unlock them. I said, look, man, how can I help you? I want to help you navigate. And he said, look, man, I am so hungry. I can't find a place to go to eat. I asked him, is there a restaurant that you're interested in? He said, there is this one place. This place that uh, I think is so cool, has this beautiful architecture. But whenever I go there, they're not open. There's people there, they're nice, but they haven't set up the tables. And they come and they talk to me and they teach me little Turkish phrases, but I cannot figure out when this place is open. (laughs) Tell me more about this place. He said, well, it's interesting, like multiple times a day they'll play this nice spiritual music. I said, can you show me? And we look out the window, and he is pointing at a mosque. (laughs) And I go on to explain to him that when he's showing up there every day, and he's grown out this beard, (laughs) that the people in that mosque think that they have a new convert, and he's the most devoted guy in their congregation. (laughs) And the words that they were teaching him were probably the shahada, the phrase to convert to become a Muslim. And he said, are you, are, are you telling me that I became a Muslim and I didn't even know it? <laughs> and it's a funny story, but it always has me thinking. Can we convert to a religion and not even know it? Can we drift and give our devotion to something else other than Jesus and not even know it? It's a big question. If we're going to ask that question, we need to ask and seek advice from someone with wisdom. So today, we're gonna learn from Solomon, the son of King David, the one that Warren talked about last week, the son of that man, who's regarded as the wisest man on earth, and see if he can help us answer that question. So go ahead and go to 1 Kings chapter three. Now in 1 Kings, we see a snapshot of the life, the biography of King Solomon, and we see the place where his wisdom starts. 1 Kings 3, God shows up to Solomon in a dream, and he says, what do you want? You know you want that dream, right? God shows up and says, what do you want? 
Solomon could have said anything. Billion dollars, perfect health, the ability to dunk a basketball, a bunch of peacocks. He could have said whatever. But in verse 9, he gives a different answer, an answer that pleases God when he says to God, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? In other words, he, he's asking for wisdom. He needed it to navigate the complexities of his day. He's overwhelmed, but God delights in his answer. And he says, not only am I going to give you wisdom, I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you influence. I'm going to give you peacocks. And so we see as we turn the page into 1 Kings 4, it's describing what Solomon's wisdom looks like in action and how he is this successful, wise polymath who's able to navigate the, so many different disciplines with wisdom. Verse 29, it says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand in the seashore. A breadth of understanding. What did this look like? Solomon was creative. He was like a cross between C.S. Lewis and Drake. <laughs> Verse 32 says that he, he dropped 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. That's 10 times more than the Beatles, right? <laughs> he understood nature. He was like the Bear Grylls of ancient Israel with a vast knowledge of plants and animals. He was a wise diplomat. He was like the Winston Churchill of ancient Israel, as in verse 34, it says that kings came from all over the world, not to fight him, but to learn from him. He was a savvy business leader. He was like the Elon Musk of ancient Israel. And in multiple places, it talks about his vast wealth. Some have said that if you look at Solomon's wealth in today's terms, it would be about $2 trillion. It's a lot of money. He had massive palaces, gold-plated everything, and it explicitly says peacocks. For some reason, that's a big deal. <laughs> then we turn the page to 1 Kings 5, and we see the ultimate act that Solomon is going to do. The thing that he, was, he had been waiting to do his whole life, to build the temple. They had been longing for a temple to, to be in the city, a place where God's presence would be there, where heaven met earth. And David had been longing for it, and everyone had been longing for it, a place where the presence of God could be seen among all of the nations. And he builds it, and it's beautiful. And they have this big ceremony, and in chapter 9, God shows up and says, I'm going to dwell here. Just don't do one thing. The thing I keep repeating over and over in Scripture. No idols. No false gods. No attempts to try to replace me as king, and I will dwell here, and your people will flourish. And then under the leadership of this 
C.S. Lewis meets Drake meets Winston Churchill meets Bear Grylls meets Elon Musk. The community flourishes. No wars. Economic flourishing. And now this incredible temple, a place of spiritual flourishing where they connect with God. This is where the story should end. This should be the happily ever after. But it's not. The wisest man on earth makes the most foolish decision in history. The one who had built this big temple now starts to build shrines to idols. We see in 1 Kings 11, starting with verse 5, it says, Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow after the Lord as David, his father, had done. Let that sink in. Looking around at all this flourishing, the ways that God had been faithful, the ways that God had worked in their life, and now they're setting up these little shrines. It says his heart was not fully after God. His heart was beginning to drift. And likely what was happening is he saw this as a simple compromise. Most of, many of his marriages were likely because of political alliance. He would marry into the family of other kings so that there would be peace. And so as a compromise to his wives from other countries, and as a, as a means of a, a diplomatic move, he's building these little shrines. God's still going to be the main God, but we'll build these little temples, these little shrines around the big temple, just to, to appease people, to satisfy people. But what he is doing is regarded as the most serious sin in Scripture. The first two commandments are about this, not worshiping anything but God or making any other images. We talk about we want a king. The, the most significant way of attempting to dethrone God is through idol worship. And here he is building these little shrines in the shadow of the temple. Why is this such a big deal? Couldn't they just have a little, like, religious diversity? Why is this a big deal? Well, let me name a few reasons some characteristics of idolatry that were true then and they are true now with the idols we worship. Number one is that idols seek to replace God. What idols are is they are a good thing that we try to turn into an ultimate thing. We take something God created and we worship it and put it at the center of our life and give it devotion rather than God. That's what they're doing here. The, the, the specific idols that are named here are Chemosh, Ashtoreth, and Milcom. Chemosh was a sun god. The sun is a good thing. But when you worship it and make it an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. Ashtoreth was a god of sexual pleasure. That is a good thing. But when you put it at the center of life, it becomes an idol and attempts to dethrone God. Milcom was a fertility god. Children and agriculture, these things are good things, but when they become the center and become gods and become ultimate things, it is a problem. 
It's a problem because the most important relationships in our life are the, are the, are the least replaceable. You can't replace your children. The devastation that happens when someone tries to replace their spouse through adultery. How much more so with God? And idolatry is an attempt to stuff God in the closet while taking something he created and worshiping it. Idolatry tries to replace God. Secondly, idolatry has religious rituals. And you're like, wow, great observation. (laughs) But it seems simple, but it's not. All false gods come with false religions. They come with a way of life that change you. And these rituals and practices form you over time. Psalm 115 says it like this. It says, those who make idols become like them. In other words, we create idols, we worship them, and then they begin to shape us. Worship the God of war, you'll become violent. Worship money, you'll become greedy. Worship sexual pleasure, you'll become insatiable in lust. And thirdly, they require human sacrifice. That idols aren't just these passive little statues, but they demand things from us that will contribute to our suffering. They're destructive, they're costly. The idols mentioned in this passage actually required something terrible from the people in worship of them. For instance, Milcom, the fertility god, required child sacrifice. These aren't just cute little figurines, these are very serious things. And whenever we elevate some aspect of God's creation and try to replace God, it's going to lead to suffering. And you see this in the life of Solomon. You see that the kingdom begins to unravel in that moment when he commits idolatry. The kingdom in the rest of 1st and 2nd Kings gets split into two. There's war, there's collapse. Injustice, like child sacrifice, spreads. There's exile, and then ultimately there is a temple laid in ruins with God's presence no more. It's a serious thing. So we ask the question can you convert to another religion and not even know it? The wisest man on earth makes the most foolish decision. He can teach us about this question. Not because of his education, but because he experienced it. And in the shadow of the temple, as he began to see things unravel and the collapse of the kingdom, he thought it was probably just some simple little compromise that he was making, but it led to the conversion of his country to generations of idol worship and unspeakable suffering. Can you convert to a religion and not even know it? What about us? Are we smarter than Solomon? Could we be drifting? Could we convert to something and not even know it? And there are a number of things that I could say right now as, as possible idols, pleasure, money, technology, but I want to go deeper. What's underneath a lot of those things? 
Have you noticed that we rarely ever have anyone in our churches convert to one of the major world religions, Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism? Are we the only ones who've figured out how to not follow idols? Or could it be that the religions that we convert to are ones that we bring into the room with us and they're not named religions? Here's where I'm gonna land today. The cultural and political idols of our day are the religions of our day that we're converting to and not even knowing it. In 2016, this is when I saw this. I began to look around and just see that there was not just opinions and discussions, but a zeal that began to reflect something like conversion. People were paying more attention to the words of political pundits rather than scripture. And I, I hate to admit it, but I was too at times. Good friends who had been together, who loved each other, through thick and thin, began to walk away with each other. They sat on the deathbed of loved ones together and were cutting each other out of their lives. I saw on the left and on the right and over social media, rather than proclaiming the gospel, people were zealously evangelizing each other to political saviors. So let's talk about these. I wanna give a framework today that names some of the religions that we are most likely to convert to. And just as First Kings names names like Milcom, I'm gonna name names as well. But let me give you a few disclaimers. Disclaimer number one, my goal is to be an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> We've got a very politically diverse congregation that leans different ways and I think that's beautiful. And I think that means that there's even more idols that we need to, to address. Don't look at someone else in this room and be like, yeah, you need to hear that. <laughs> because the next point is probably coming for you. Um, number two, hear this really clearly. I'm not telling you how to vote, and I never will. And, and I'm trying to name the idols that are in competition with King Jesus. And you could not pay me enough. You couldn't pay me $1,000 and 20 peacocks to tell you how to vote. But I will tell you to worship Jesus over those things. And the, thir the third just disclaimer is that since 2020, I've been so proud of this congregation and the way that you have put Jesus at the center and not these ideologies but I almost, that I almost hesitate to bring it up. But we need to bring it up because people are spending billions of dollars to lure you to another allegiance and to get you to tear apart from one another. So let's talk about the landscape of these religions and of these idols and where they come from. See, in 2020, I thought it was a left-right thing, that it was polarized and that there were really two main religions. But I think it's more complex than that. Started to see things that didn't quite fit into that spectrum and fractures within even the left and right and realized that there's another philosophical axis at work, which is a mo modern, postmodern axis. Uh, these other two forces are very powerful forces in the Western mind. And with these four forces, it's, it's pulling in different directions. Now you might be like, what's modern, postmodern? I'm gonna give you a simple, quick explanation. If you know philosophy, you're gonna wanna slap me, but I'll take the slap over them falling asleep. So, modernity is a worldview that grew out of the Enlightenment. It's where you place faith in the rational aspects of the mind, scientific method, 
and you're building strong institutions and technologies uh, to make the world a better place, to solve all the world's problems through human ingenuity. If there's a visual stereotype, it's this clean-cut scientist in a lab thinking he's going to figure out the world, and then, like, world war is going to happen a few years after this guy does something. So that's modernity. Post-modernity is a, uh, here's your visual stereotype. It's a reactionary movement that's focused on deconstructing modernity because it saw the failings of modernity. World wars, nuclear weapons, uh, oppression in the name of science like eugenics. And so it rejects the institutions of modernity. And Jean-Francois Lyotard, he's got a cool name, um, he says that it's the that postmodernity's incredulity toward meta-narratives. In other words, big stories, big morals, big universals that try to explain all of life, they're just oppressive. And what we really need to do is focus on our experience, and the truth comes from our, uh, what, what we think. And we need to focus on ourselves and just construct ourselves. There aren't these big universals. Modernity is about discovering the world, postmodernity about creating your own world. And so here we have the four quadrants that are, that are created with these cultural forces. And within each of these, I think, stands a religion within each quadrant that has an idol that's trying to replace God. It's essentially a good thing that's becoming an ultimate thing. Religious rituals that form us and it requires human sacrifice. So let's talk about it. The modern left, that quadrant, the upper left quadrant, takes a good thing of progress. If there's one word, we could call it, we call it progress. And it becomes an ultimate thing, and a way of life forms around it. And many of us convert to the religion of progress without even knowing it. If this religion had a creed, it would be to change the world. It's a very optimistic religion that believes that if we just apply ourselves to technology and rationality, then we can, we can find solutions to disease and poverty and, and hunger, and we can, through education and research, change everything. This religion has a sacred text, the Holy Scripture, that replaces the Bible as the source of truth sometimes. Maybe things like TED Talks, or NPR, or academic research, to where if you hear it there, that's when you'll believe it. It has preachers and prophets, figures like Bill Gates, or the Clinton family, or maybe the worship leader is like Bono, singing the songs about like changing the world. And they, it preaches this gospel that human ingenuity will bring global flourishing and eradicate AIDS and solve climate change and end world hunger. Is there anything good in here? Yeah. Progress is a good thing. It's a part of the creational good that God intended for us in Genesis 1 when God said for us to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. We're called to cultivate God's world. And because of things, influences like this, we have electricity, we've got air conditioning, any medicine you've ever benefited from, but when this good thing becomes an ultimate thing and demands your allegiance, it requires human sacrifice. Because innovation at any cost 
without the, the moral grounding to put some brakes on it is going to lead to suffering. What are some examples? Facebook, the technology meant to bring us together, tears us apart. The food engineering that was intended to feed the hungry gets in the hands of people who are trying to make addictive food more addictive. Nuclear energy intended to power the world now has the power of destroying the world. See, humans were created to seek progress, but when it becomes an idol and an end into itself, people are sacrificed on the altar of progress. The next religion. If there was one word that we could give to it, it would be responsibility. And if it had a creed, the creed would be, Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Work hard. Be responsible. It's a vision of pursuing the American dream to focus on oneself and one's family. It reduces all of society to a lack of responsibility or moral corruption or the failure of the family. People in this will say that people, if you work hard, you'll get what you deserve, you'll prosper, and if you don't, you reap what you sow. Where do they get this? Holy scriptures, like the Wall Street Journal or the Daily Wire. Prophets and preachers, the old great high priest of this, Ronald Reagan, or more modern pastors like Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson, or maybe even the, the uh, dirty jobs guy, Mike Rowe. <laughs> they preach a gospel that the world will be saved if we just work hard, have good morals, and take responsibility for your actions, your family, and your prosperity. Is there anything good here? Absolutely. It's a part of our creational intent. God's creational intent. In Genesis, he creates humans, and he says that they put them in the garden to work it and to keep it. Work and responsibility. These are important parts of creation. But when it becomes ultimate, it requires human sacrifice. And there's a temptation in this quadrant when it becomes a God to ignore the Bible's call for justice, for caring for the poor. It says, if people would just be responsible, they wouldn't be in this situation. And there's a tendency to look down on single mothers trying to make ends meet, homeless people who are struggling with schizophrenia, or the young woman medicating the pain of childhood abuse with amphetamines. It's a sacrifice of passivity that says if they would have just had better parents or worked a little harder, they'd be fine. We were created to be responsible and to work hard, but when it becomes an idol, we sacrifice the poor, we sacrifice the suffering on the altar of responsibility. Now we come to the ones where people are going to get real offended. Uh, <laughs> the postmodern left the postmodern right. In, the, in that quadrant, I would say it's a religion of identity. Identity is good. God made us male and female. God made us of different ages and ethnicities. It's good. When you make it an ultimate thing, it becomes a religion with a creed of live your truth. Don't let anyone tell you how to live your life. Rather than looking for universal truth or morality, it's a religion focused on discovering and constructing a sense of self. And then, and, and that often will come through self-expression. It says that identity comes through self-expression, through discovering your authentic desires and being your authentic self. 
So you take personality tests and you acquire particular tastes and you go on, you're looking for that career and all these things to answer your, the question of who am I? What's the sacred text of this one? TikTok, Instagram, social media with influencers who will give you the vast array of options of what is an acceptable identity and then you will curate those to say here is who I am. The preachers and prophets of the don't let anyone tell you who you are, who, who you need to be, religion. Lady Gaga, Lil Nas X, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the political world. And they preach a gospel that the world will be saved through deconstructing and dismantling all of the institutions and ideas that keep people from expressing their true selves. Is there a good thing? Yeah. Our identity is created by God. We're created in his image. Genesis 1:27 says we're created in the image of God, male and female. In the beginning, there's already differentiations of the nuances of identity. And you see throughout scripture, things like ethnicity are, are carried into eternity. They're important. But when it becomes an idol, there's human sacrifice. You see, this Worldview sees the evil in the world, but not within oneself. And so therefore, in an attempt to dismantle broken things, unjust structures, it often dismantles good parts of God's creation, things like marriage and virtue and life. Like marriage. Where does this show up? It shows up in the husband who says that the institution of marriage is a, is a barrier to my true self as he commits adultery, rips a family apart and says, wouldn't God just want me to be happy? It's deconstructing virtue. It's the, the person who verbally tears somebody apart with their words and says, well, look, I'm just an Enneagram 8. That's what I do. <laughs> it's deconstructing life. In my family, everyone encouraged my mom to terminate the pregnancy with me. They said so she could be her true self and follow her dreams. A world that esteems identity and personal experience above all else is where we sacrifice one another on the altar of identity. And finally, the postmodern right, the religion of security. Religion, security is a good thing. Protecting the things you love is a good thing. But when it becomes ultimate and it becomes a religion, it has the creed of good fences make good neighbors. It's a worldview where boundaries and rules and borders are very important because they keep the bad people out. It divides the world into insiders and outsiders. And this worldview is prevalent in a number of different places, sports culture sometimes, uh, some of the 90s hip-hop culture, some of the stuff I, I, I like to listen to. But its most prominent place is in American nationalism, which views the outsiders as a threat to the way of, uh, is the institutions of modernity. Government is the deep state that's taking away your rights. Medical system is the big pharma that's pushing pills. Large corporations that are trying to take jobs. The mainstream media that's trying to deceive people from the truth. And it gets these ideas from the sacred holy texts of things like Newsmax and Truth Social and Breitbart. 
its preachers are the Tucker Carlson's and the Sarah Palin's, or even less political figures, but have the same worldview, intense, we're fighting for our insider, outsider, like Dana White in the UFC. It can often be a mindset that's not even connected to politics. They preach a gospel where everything you love is under threat, but if you band together and fight, you can defeat those who are trying to destroy your way of life. Security, is, it, is there a good part of creation in this? Absolutely. You see in Genesis that God intended for us to dwell in safety. Adam and Eve live in a place with boundaries and borders and rules that allow them to work and build their lives. But when it becomes an idol, this, and a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it demands human sacrifice. You see, with this worldview, the shield which one thinks is protecting themselves from the outsiders is often inadvertently turned into a sword which harms others. And that's where we get ethnic and political and religious violence so often. What does it look like? It's the death threats I received when we started caring for refugees in this church. It's the graffiti on the side of a synagogue that says, go back to where you came from. It's Dylan Roof walking into an all-black church and interrupting a prayer meeting with gunshots. When security becomes a God, it requires the sacrifice of people made in God's image. So here we have it. Four religions that are tempting you. And so the question is, where does Jesus belong? Where do we belong as God's people? Well, Jesus, he doesn't belong to any of those. All of those things belong to him. And when you get Jesus, you get the best of all of these things. Where does the church belong? We don't belong to any of these either. We belong to Jesus. And so Jesus stands at the center of this world of, of idols and he sets up a table and that table is called the church where we all lean in different directions, but our allegiance is only to Jesus and we feast together learn from one another, worship Jesus together, and while we may lean in different ways, we only bow in one direction. My encouragement is for you to stay at the table. This table that Jesus sets up, to stay at the table with one another. Days are coming when people are investing top dollar to get you to split apart. And there will be a temptation just to cut people out of your life and to turn to, the, to, to whatever your, your news is instead of scripture. And this, and turn us all into puppets for different ideologies. And this cuts against the heart of Jesus. His prayer for us in John 17 is that we would be perfectly one, unified. Why? So that the world would know of God's love a unified church, staying together, staying at the table, even having hard conversations is the heart of Jesus. And why? Because our witness depends on it. If we fracture as a church, we fracture the gospel and give a distorted picture of Jesus to the world. If we stay at the table, we're a countercultural community that is united in a fracturing world. 
If we stay at the table, we can be an island of peace and refuge in a sea of anxiety and rage. If we stay at the table, we will be a people who can have hard conversations with one another. We don't have to walk on eggshells, but we love each other and we have both deep convictions and humility. If we stay at the table, we have the opportunity to be a unique community that displays the uniqueness of Jesus to the world. So you might be wondering now, um, is it wrong that I listen to NPR sometimes? (laughs) Is that going to break up the church? If I like Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules of Life, am am I ruining everything? Not necessarily. It's not just okay that we lean in different directions. It's absolutely necessary that we have a church that leans in different directions. Because as we're around the table together with Jesus as the center, we are able to help one another. We're able, some of us see the, the, the idols of a different quadrant better than others. And we can help each other resist the temptation of the idols. And we can help each other see the creational good that's in the other quadrants. We need people who lean different directions. We need people who lean progress to help us keep cultivating the world. We need people who lean responsibility to help us care for our work and our families. We need people who lean identity to keep us attentive to the Bible's continual call for justice. We need people who lean security to keep us bold and courageous. And if we are together with all of these leanings at the table, we can be a unique and distinct community. But let's make something absolutely clear. There is a difference between leaning and bowing. Leaning is when you have a different perspective. Bowing is when you have a different allegiance, a different God. And it's not always easy to tell the difference. So let me just give you a few questions to help you diagnose. Are you leaning or have you converted to a religion without even knowing it? Question number one, do you give more time and attention to the words of political pundits than the words of scripture? In other words, how do you edit your Bible? Which verses do you cut out because of the influences of others? Which of the idols that I named a second ago did you feel the need to protect and to justify? That anger that you felt bubbling inside of you, that might be the very same anger that shows up in Acts when the idols are threatened and they cause a riot in the city. That might be an indication of idolatry? Do you have a pattern of cutting people out of your life because they don't agree with your political perspective? And finally, is there any political movement or figure that moves your heart more than Jesus? Because I know that some of us remember the day when Jesus was our affection. But we've started to kind of shrug at him. When that movement, when that political figure pops up on your screen, that gets you excited. 
or gets you fired up, that might be an indication that you are bowing instead of leaning. As we come to the table, I don't want to leave you with just shame on you. Stop worshiping idols. But you just say, this happens. And we need to return to the table with Jesus. The reason why we don't return to the table is because we're hungry. Leon left his house because he was hungry and ended up converting to religion. Often we are hungry for things, and that's what draws us to idols and ideologies. And all I want to say to you as we close is that Jesus provides a better feast than every one of the idols. Whatever you are hungering for in any of those quadrants, he provides it better. So those who are tempted to the idol of progress, Jesus has a better feast. I know you hunger for a day when the world will be transformed and suffering and disease will be eradicated. You're looking for that one technique, that one supplement, that one innovation that's gonna make things right. But there is no man-made pill or invention that will fulfill the promise and the hunger that you are craving. But what you really need is not a pill, but a person. It is Jesus. He is the one who walked on the earth and healed and eradicated the disease that was around him and is the one through the technology of the cross who can make things right. He will return to one day to wipe away every tear and to make all things new, to send disease and remission, to turn weapons of war into instruments of peace and to prepare the finest feast for those who are hungry. Come and feast with Jesus. To those tempted by the idol of responsibility, come, Jesus provides something better. I know you hunger for a peaceful life where if you just work hard enough and live a morally upright life that you're gonna have that American dream. But you know in your heart of hearts that there's something that could go wrong. And you run harder and you work faster and you double down and you put in extra hours and you try to find the right schools and you save money and you eat salads. (laughs) But your work and your responsibility is not enough. It can't outrun suffering and sin and death. But here's the thing, it's not about your work. It's about the work of Jesus, the one who took responsibility for you and through his life, death, and resurrection invites you to an eternal family that you don't deserve, but is given by grace. Come to the table. To those tempted by the idol of identity, Jesus has a better feast. I know that you long to be known and to be seen and loved. And I just want to encourage you to rest. Rest from your work of crafting a perfect self and finding a perfect career and the right causes in the updated fashion and know that Jesus is the one who has created you. Even the nuances of everything that makes you, you. And he sees you and he loves you. And he died to be with you. And you don't have to be on that treadmill of self-creation. He's not just pursuing you, but he's pursuing all who need justice and are oppressed and trampled and overlooked in the world. 
to those tempted by the idol of security. Come feast with Jesus. He offers something better. I know you hunger for a life where the things that you love the most are not under threat from the outsiders. And you are right, there are outsiders that are threatening the things you love the most, but you've chosen the wrong outsiders. The outsiders that are really after the things you love the most are sin, Satan, and death, and they have no place in God's creation. And you are right that someone needs to step up and deal with them, and someone has. Armed with his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus fights the fight that you could not win, was loyal to you when you weren't loyal to him, and who welcomed you to the table when you were an outsider because of your sin. Friends, let's come now and take communion. And as we take communion, let this be a release of our idols and to take up the elements as a way of pledging our ultimate allegiance to Jesus and our commitment to staying with one another at the table. Let's pray. Father, we pray the, the words of Psalm 115, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Not to any of the idols or ideologies that want to compete with you, but to your name be the glory. In you, Jesus, are found all of the gifts of your creation. And so God, help us to delight in the good gifts, to resist the idols, to stay with one another as a community of love, and to be a people that bears witness to the world. And God, we pray that as we come and take communion now, as we receive the bread and the wine, that we would receive it in a way that says Jesus is more satisfying than what anything else has to offer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.